Welcome to the show. It's Filmography Club. I'm Jason. You know what it is. You know who it is. So look, you've read the title for the episode. It's another Our Favorite Movies episode, and we're talking about Akiru today. That's Akira Kurosawa's 1952 drama starring Takashi Shimura. This movie was brought to my attention by my guest today, Toby Leonard. Toby has been the programming director of Nashville's Belcourt Theater since 2004 and was part of a small group that formed to save the city's last historic neighborhood theater from the wrecking ball in 1999. Since then, he's been dedicated to making the Belcourt a nationally recognized venue through a dedication to a healthy mix of first-run and repertory programming. In 2006, he joined a small group of hand-picked exhibitors to begin work on the Sundance Institute Art House Project. In addition to his work at the Belcourt, he has served as a theatrical distribution consultant, handling releases for Kino Lorber, Polsky Films, and Drag City, among others, and as a technical consultant for the Provincetown and Key West Film Festivals. All of this is to say, the man knows his shit. We spoke via Zoom, and you will no doubt notice the sound quality suffers a bit for this. Sorry about that, but these are the times we live in. All right, there's not a lot of housekeeping to do on today's episode, so let's just get to it. Here's my conversation with Toby Leonard about what many consider to be Kurosawa's masterpiece, 1952's Ikiru. All right, I'm, I'm here with Toby Leonard. Toby, how are you, man? I'm doing A-OK, yeah. as well as I can be under under the uh, the well-known circumstances we're all more or less in at the moment. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, welcome. I appreciate you coming on the show. This is our first time actually meeting each other, as it were, face-to-face via Zoom. That which binds all of us these days. And the ever-present Zoom, indeed. So uh, today we're going to talk about Akiru. And, and I have to say, whenever you sent me the email saying that that's the movie you wanted to talk about, uh, I was... I was like, okay, that's that's fine. I, I haven't I haven't heard of this movie. That's great though, because that's kind of one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast, so I can learn more about film. And I'm going to just go ahead and out myself right now. This was my first Kurosawa. Wow. This, is, this was the first Kurosawa film I've I've ever watched. I know I've. It's always been in the back of my mind. Like you really need to watch Sam, Seven Samurai or Hidden Fortress or Your Jimbo. The, the, the movies everyone knows the names of. I'd never even heard of Akiru. Am I saying that right? Just right at the top, I want to thank you for turning me onto this film. This is uh, the- so I'm so glad to hear it because you know when when it came up, I was like, oh man, do I really want to like? Do I, I mean, I know that's cutting it like maybe a shade deeper on the Kurosawa level, but like you know, I could we could have just as easily talked about Seven Samurai, honestly, or or like any of them he's yeah i mean kurosawa is kind of like comfort food for me you know like like i i could i could almost like pick any of them at random you know if i'm trying to like dial down and you might not think that like picking a samurai film or like you know something like that would just like set me down down to a level where where i'm like okay all right now i can chill but yeah, he, he he's a, one of those filmmakers that's just like, I just like, I think maybe I saw Seven Samurai before I saw Akira, but I do think that those were the two that I saw first. And I saw them at the Belcourt back in 2002. Thank I'm so glad to hear that. That's yeah, it, it was, it's one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen. It, it left me haunted and rethinking my life. I'm, I'm not even kidding you. It was great. 
So yeah. thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I've been looking forward to talking about this ever since I, I, I finished it. I, Dude, I want to hear it, man. Tell me all. Tell me everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, where to start? I guess we need to set the table. Uh, this is, of course, an Akira Kurosawa film, legendary Japanese filmmaker, the go-to example of a Japanese filmmaker, I believe. He uh, had a 50 plus some odd year career made mm-hmm. movies for decade after decade after decade. He highly influenced everyone that you've heard of Spielberg, uh, George Lucas, like there's tons of stuff I hear taken from what is it? Hidden Fortress for star Wars. Well, right? yeah. Uh, Hidden Fortress is often, often uh, pointed out as a touchstone for star Wars, particularly the, uh, you know, the, the, well, the, there, there is the princess who is, you know, the princess who needs to be saved. But there's also like the bumbling idiots, which are kind of like the, the R2-D2, C-3PO prototypes. But, right. And there's a lot of visual flourishes as well that you, that, that, you know, he obviously cops. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is his, uh, I believe it was his 13th feature film to direct. It's a 1952 movie. Won lots of awards. Uh, it's the predecessor to, it, it came out r- the year before uh, Hidden Fortress, which is widely considered to be his masterpiece, but oftentimes, just from digging around for this episode, a lot of uh, a lot of film critics consider Akira to be his true masterpiece. I'll stop you there. Hidden Fortress actually came out in '58, which is that was right? like yeah. So basically, Seven Samurai is that what I'm thinking? Akira was '52. Right after that is Seven Samurai. That's the movie I was thinking, right? Yeah, yeah. You're. Just, I think you just had that, and then like the, all of the '50s is just like one masterpiece after another. You know, like the Hidden Fortress might be like four or five films later. Absolutely wonderful movie. Uh, Kurosawa. When I think of Kurosawa, and again, I'm just some dumb Anglo guy if living in 21st century United States. I'm not really a cinephile by any means, but when I hear Akira Kurosawa's name, I don't think about dramas. I think about period piece samurai films. Those mm-hmm. tend to be the ones that kind of suck up the oxygen when, when in the room when you're talking about Kurosawa's films. A lot of critics that I've read talking about Akira, they point to this one and they say, no, 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 it's his dramas. The, the period pieces are fantastic too, but mm-hmm. the dramas like Akira, that's, that's where it's at. I'm looking forward to getting into the rest of the guy's work, but that's... That's another podcast, I suppose. <laughs> well, you, you know, like so, Takashi Samura, who is the uh, the lead, plays the lead actor mm-hmm. in Akira, the, the the man whose end of life we follow right from the beginning. You know, he he winds up being like kind of like these great character actors in the in the other movies, but I think this might be one of the, one of the few where he's the lead, except for maybe this in Drunken Angel, which is also kind of like a little bit a, a little bit in the dramatic realm if you're into that you might find out but you know obviously the curse i was most closely associated with toshiro Mifune, who is you know the seventh samurai uh he's yojimbo he, he's he, he's the main badass in all of all the badass kurosawa films but he's not in this movie i don't think at all unless he plays a cameo you know there's so many of these cats that you see in and out of all the films include so many of them that are in akiru at various points and once you kind of get a little bit deeper you'll start picking those people out yeah i watched about the first half of akiru yesterday a rewatch just to refresh my memory on it because it's been a couple of weeks since i watched it all the way through and i watched it with commentary and the guy doing the commentary was a guy that's written a, a book about akira kurosawa's films he says i think there's five of the samurai five of the seven are in this movie and he was pointing them out as they popped up 
Oh, cool. I have to go back and check that out. That'd be, that'd be great. So yeah, I guess we should start at the top here. Uh, Akira Kurosawa co-wrote and he directed this film. It's uh, a drama, 1952, and it's about a man named Watanabe. He's a bureaucrat in post-war Japan. And we're going to get into spoilers, by the way. There's no point in trying to keep that yeah. away from our conversation. It's kind of hard to talk about this film without talking about that last hour. Well, it's also kind of hard to not talk about the film without talking about the very first shot, which is that shot of where we are indeed informed that this is a dead man. You yeah. know, it's a shot of his, his uh, it's a, what do you call it, an x-ray of his stomach. Yeah, it's and, his stomach. He has stomach cancer. Yeah. And they're basically laid out right at the beginning. This this guy's done for. You know, that's the first minute in the movie. So, like, I, uh, thankfully, it's not one you can spoil too much. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. They let you know right at the top. This guy's doomed. He's got maybe six months tops and here we go. And it's, it's a very, uh, man, it's just a moving story. I, I just <laughs> had a start. So the guy finds out he's doomed right at the beginning of the film and he's a bureaucrat post-war Japan. And he starts to feel like his life really hasn't amounted to much of anything. He hasn't done much of anything to be proud of. He has a son with whom he lives and his son's wife, and they are both just shitty people. And uh, that's one of the themes of the film, I believe, is is family. And and we'll I'm sure we'll get into that in a little bit here. The guy doesn't really feel like he's done much of anything. He works in a bureaucracy who are constantly giving people the runaround, not really helping out the public like they ought to be doing. Their goal is to clock in every day, never miss a day, and to do absolutely no work. Yeah, that's the thing that sets this whole thing off is like this guy has been in this position for I think that maybe they say after like 25 years of service, it's like one day he doesn't show up to work. And that's how the move that's that's like the, the, the thing that, that turn, sets this whole thing into motion. It's just like one simple thing. Well, he didn't show up to work. What's going on? And that basically gives forth to like the first act, which, you know, where you do kind of like. It's the, the time where it's him discovering his illness, realizing all these things that he has to account for in his life and all of his shortcomings. And it's interesting you brought up this scene with his family or, or you know, when you first meet his family, I guess it's his it's his son and his son's wife. Right. Right. And he comes back home after he's found out after he's discovered that he's dying can't really like give them any any sort of i guess that that's also a conceit of the film is, is like you know even all the way to the end is who really knows about it other than one instance which we'll probably talk about it, nobody nobody knows about it but you get this this setup with, with the family and, and when i rewatched this film which i did in the last couple of days uh, in preparation for this podcast i picked up on i picked up on the, that that sequence where it, it establishes his relationship with his son it's like he comes home that that night and, and what does he see he sees a baseball bat as it's set is it's like his door jam it's his door lock he looks down at this baseball bat and then it flashes back to like to hit his son at his like at this baseball game and his son's not a great baseball player you know and 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 then and then we we, we see like his son maybe his son like uh, he, and then he's a little bit older and he's like taking his son for an operation and, and you see, you know, all this affection that he has for his son. He tells you the son goes off to war. He's waving him off to war. And I was reminded of that scene in Up, you know, that critical scene in Up that establishes the, uh, you know, talk about the Pixar movie, mm-hmm. that establishes the widow's relationship with his wife. Right. And I don't think I'd seen Up at that. I, I just kind of like had this, I was like, oh shit, that's Up. 
Yeah, that that, that heartbreaking montage of, of, yeah. of the life yeah, they had together. It, yeah, yeah, the 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 life he and his wife had together. But here it is, it's like him and his son. It's just establishing his real. And, and of course, you know, the heartbreak is when it comes back to the president. You realize his son's only concerned about things like inheritance and yeah, right. Yeah, so he doesn't even bother telling his family or anyone, his coworkers, nobody that you know he he's just that he's dying. So the next bit of the film, we just watch the guy go through the stages of grief, I suppose, and he tries to deal with it in various ways. He decides to uh, carpe diem, and he he finds a party buddy, a running buddy, and they they hit the nightlife and a, hip, a hipster rider. Yeah, <laughs> he meets him at a noodle shop. I mean, how perfect is that? You know, it's like- I really like that guy too. That character was 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 great. So we watch we watch this guy go through, I guess, the seven stages of grief. Finally, he accepts it, and then that's like the first hour and twenty minutes or so of the film, hour and a half. It's all yeah. linear, and then we just jump ahead a good five months or so to the right. end. And then we get that whole sequence at the end, which is just beautiful. Yeah, I, beautiful I kind of, I'd always, I'd remember this as a movie that seemed like it had like a first half and a second half, but on my rewatch now I'm thinking that there actually is in three parts, you know, it's like you say, it's like, there's a kind of like the first act is the whole thing of, the, of him realizing. And then he, then he runs in with his cat in the noodle shop and then they go out on like post-war jazz age, Japan, where everybody's just drinking and throwing down. And, and it's like kid rock COVID nightmare type of club scenario where everybody's just shoulder to shoulder. You know, you could see all the American influences coming in. And, you know, he himself is this figure, this older figure from a past time. And and I think you kind of are constantly reminded of that through various little visual cues or whatever. But he's clearly at odds with this new post-war environment. To put it in some sort of historical context, I guess, maybe that maybe that's a that's an important thing to recognize when watching it in, a, in the current context. It is during the uh, during the commentary. The guy points out the guy doing the commentary. He does point out the idea of, of a bureaucracy that it's as powerful as those guys are supposed to be was pretty new to Japan. At that point, it was up until that point, it was it was imperial. Everything was top down from the the, the godhead emperor running everything, and he would just decree things, and things would just kind of run downhill from there. After this, it's something resembling democracy that we would recognize, and there's more power given to local governments. But these guys are just ill-equipped to deal with it, and they, they do everything in their power to just do nothing. Yeah, and I'm not sure if it's if it's ever directly addressed or not. But do you know if it's is it supposed to be in Tokyo? Which I can't recall? I almost said Tokyo earlier, uh, like Tokyo nightlife, but I, I genuinely couldn't remember yeah, if that, if that yeah, was Tokyo so or not. No, I, I just assume because that's the, the the biggest you know city, and you you kind of get into that a little later as characters like the vice mayor and the mayor are introduced in the scenario. But yeah, when you look at that, I kind of see it as like. The first section ends after he goes out and has his big all-nighter with this with this rider guy, and then it transitions to this new thing. It's like so he's gotten his vice stuff out of the way, and now he's kind of this young woman who I guess needs his stamp of approval, and he's not been at work. Shows up at his at, at his home, right? I think that's right because she's actively yes. seeking him out. She needs his signature because she's resigning. She was a subordinate at work in the bureaucracy in the town hall, right. and she's quitting to uh, go make toys to work at a toy factory. 
Right. So at that point, we get we we get away from this uh, this ill-advised alcoholic turn and into this perhaps similarly ill-advised yearning for youth, which take which is becomes manifest in this in this young woman. So then there's this whole section with her, right? And all these incredible scenes, just of crowds and restaurants and these sets where they go to some noodle shop and there's you know a staircase behind them. There's just layers upon layers. I think just photographically, there's so much to savor in so many of these sequences that are some of the busiest sequences in the, in the film entirely, you know, where there's the most activity, the most going on in the foreground and background. You can actually press pause on any of this. That's that's what they say about great movies. You know, press pause on any of them. It's like you just hang it on your... Every frame of painting. Every frame of painting. Kurosawa, I've always heard the guy was the master of the frame and he always keeps the frame interesting. Like you said, there's always something going on. My absolute favorite scene in the movie, more so than the final scene, the, the iconic swing uh, is the scene where he decides I know what I'm going to do when he's talking to her and there's that birthday party going on in the background so you're watching this really dry almost still conversation between two people across a table about mortality and then in the back that's really lit up there's this big window and behind it is a big party room and these teenagers I think young people are back there and they're just throwing down it's a party going on back there it's just absolutely wonderful and there's uh, the symbolism that, that goes on in there and I did not know this this movie taught me that I suppose according to this movie anyway when Japanese people sing happy birthday it's in English Mm-hmm. It's, it's the yeah. only English in the entire movie. They sing happy birthday to the girl as he's leaving and going down that big staircase. And that's the moment he has his rebirth. As they're yeah. singing happy birthday, he has his uh, metaphorical rebirth. Yeah. And that's also right. I think that moment is marked by Siren and a quick cut to his funeral. So right. that's like, that's that point where we're okay. Now we've left this entire, we've left the, the president of the, well, whatever, pluperfect. I don't know what the fuck it's called. Yeah. Um, we'll call uh, it the president. Yeah, we, we've left this sort of present and we've jumped forward. And then this kind of whole new movie opens up. It really is. It's a totally different uh, framing device to tell the story. So we get to the last 50 minutes, hour or so of the film, and it's his memorial service, and it's all of his family and coworkers sitting around just talking about the guy. And It's just so perfectly structured. I mean, you know, you, you, I think one of the first people to, to speak in that is, uh, is supposedly this vice mayor guy who we don't really, I don't remember if he shows up in kind of the early scenes of like the bureaucratic passing the buck or whatnot, but he kind of set, he kind of sets the stage for this whole thing and to, to where he, he's basically saying, well, yeah, you know, and now we're talking, we should probably, we didn't talk about the park. Basically the, the thrust of the, the, this is even right back in the very beginning of the movie, you know, the, the thrust is, is there's this cesspool mosquito pit in this poor part of town and the women come to Watanabe's office to see about getting it taken care of. I don't remember if the idea at the time was to float it as a park or what, but they just had this health hazard in their neighborhood. And that sets up the bureaucratic dilemma. It's like, well, this isn't this isn't our section. This is the parks department. And then the parks department's like, oh no, no, this is public works. You gotta go to public works. And you know, with with each shift, you get that white. It's mm-hmm. like and there's another thing you see in Star Wars, right? The, the the left to right wipe or the right to left, as it were, depending on where the motion is coming from. But yeah, so I mean, ultimately, the tertiary character, I guess, as it were, in this film is 
this piece of land that he turns into a park through sheer force of will. And, and interestingly, I guess we don't really learn about that until the funeral, do we? Other, other than... Right. Other than the early appearance of this probably four or five women that show up. And that's what's so beautiful formally about this film. When you get into that final section of the funeral, all of these little droplets or, or morsels or whatever that are dropped in the path all the way along start coming into play. First, you meet the vice mayor guy and he's saying he doesn't deserve credit for this park. I think that we all de deserve a little bit of credit for this park. And, and, and that just kind of sets the stage for this. What is basically this funeral of uh, or this wake, I should say, of a bunch of bureaucrats that work with the main character and like three members of his family. And I love how as the scene goes on, everybody's getting like more and more drunk and the truth starts coming more and more out. Just like any good drinking session might devolve. But, uh, yeah. but I mean, there's so many like just beautiful things. And all the while, it's framed. You see his photograph is almost is very frequently pictured in the background uh, whenever almost anybody in the scene is speaking. And usually when somebody opens their mouth, it immediately cuts to flashback. And we start learning through these flashbacks the story of how he quietly, unbeknownst to most, made all the difference in the lives of these people in this one neighborhood. And I love that, again, he didn't tell anyone that he worked with. He told nobody in his family that he was, that he was dying. So they start putting that together. This guy knew that he was dying, and here's why I think so. And some guy, they would go into a flashback, and then that triggers everyone else that hears that when they go into their flashbacks. Like, wait, this interaction I had with him a few months ago, now I'm looking at that in a totally different light. And then it shows that, and everyone starts piecing it together. This guy knew he was dying, and he yeah. motivated us just to do our jobs. And by the end of the film, everybody that works in that office is fired up about how, in his memory, they're going to start, they're going to turn over a new leaf, they're not going to give people People to run around anymore and, and and damn it we're gonna make this a fine community we're gonna do we're gonna do great and mm -hmm. of course it all falls apart the <laughs> moment they go back to work and no one changes no one learned anything yeah that's the i mean that's the final 90 seconds of the movie it seems you know yeah. well actually no because actually uh, i might say that you're left with a degree of hope at the end because after it's the, after the close of the funeral, after all these men have got suitably drunk, admitted their deep disgrace over the state of things in City Hall, which is where they all work, I guess, is City Hall. Then we cut back to the to the office, and it's the next day, the next week, stuff, three months. Who you don't really know. They never give us a time frame. They, the, the movie's full of jumps, but go ahead. Right. You see these are these early things, these motifs, the stacks of paper, reams uh, everywhere. Yeah, they're just buried. Everybody's framed like they, they, somebody's head might be framed like with halfway framed below their, their nose with just paper in it. And then the camera might go down to where they're just buried. You know? And that is act. That's the so there's there's the one sober guy at the part at the wake. And he's the guy who, while all these people are just slurring, drunk, making promises. He's the guy standing over in the very corner, calmly listening. And then you see him kind of like at one point you see him turn towards the portrait and all the noise seems to fall away. And that's the interesting about that, that kind of second to last scene back in the office is that he winds up being the guy buried in paper. There's a, there's an incident where somebody comes in, they want something. And one of his cohorts who had previously been drunkenly professing to change everything, we're going to change everything. Well, the guy's just not moved whatsoever. 
Mm-hmm. So our sober friend stands up, knocks something off behind him, hits the ground. And there's this moment of tension, right? It's like between him and whoever has taken Watanabe's place as the sector chief. And they, they look at each other real deeply. And, and it's clear that there's nothing that's going to happen. And, and so our sober friend sits down and the camera goes down and buries him in a pile of paper. Uh, <laughs> moments like that just hit me full square in the chest too. Yeah, just yeah, all but- that work, the last 50 minutes of this movie looked like they were building up to this great, huge change. And then no human nature takes over the moment these guys sober up and they go back to work. It's like, no, but, but the moment of hope is a recurrence of the song. You hear that the song life is brief or life is sweet. I can't remember what the name of Gondola it is. No Uta. Ooh, in Japanese. I've got it. I've got it in front of me here. Eat. Yeah. So, so here's this hopeful song, which, which, which I believe is the third time it's played in the movie, and 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 it's a shot at dusk in this park, and there's kids playing everywhere, and there, maybe there's a father swinging, swinging a, a daughter, and there and there's people all over the place, and up in the top you see a shadow, and that's our sober friend. <laughs> That's right. But he shows he shows up and it's just his silhouette up in the shadow looking down. And that song keeps playing the end. Not a dry eye in the house. They set that moment up beautifully too, because uh towards the, earlier in the film, once he finds out that he's dying, our hero Watanabe is in a bar and he sings along to that song. I've got the Wikipedia page for uh Gondola no Uta in front of me. I'm gonna read from that for a moment. It's uh, a 1915 romantic ballad. Uh so the lyrics are presented as the advice of an experienced individual to younger people regarding the fleeting nature of youth and the caution against missing the opportunities of youth when they are available and before they have passed with growing age. At the beginning of the film, he's dying. He knows it. He's sad about it. And he sings this song. And depending on how you intone the song, it has a different meaning. This is just wallowing in in self-pity if you sing it the way he did. Life is brief, fall in love, maidens before the crimson bloom fades from your lips, before the tides of passion cools within you, for there is no such thing as tomorrow after all. And it's very sad. the end of the film when we get to that iconic shot of him on the swing in the park that is his lasting legacy that will live past him that he was searching for and he forced into existence he sings it again but this time with great contentment and he's totally at peace with it and it's this haunting beautiful shot of this late middle-aged man in a child's swing just looking content singing that song at night as the snow falls on him it's gorgeous
It's something that if you and if you look back at the first the first time when he sings it, he's in the in the bar. He's, yeah. he's they're out there. He's out there with his with his drunk buddy, and and uh, he starts singing it. All the people around it's clearly a bummer for everybody, but I think him. But he's framed in confetti. He's got confetti all around him. And then the next time he's framed in snow. So like you know, you kind of have a little bit of okay. Well, there here's this the falseness of, of the nightlife, the lie of the nightlife, and it's immaterial confetti of the brain yeah. <laughs> contrasted against just a beautiful evening snow that's apparently, as we find out from the policeman who brings his hat to his wake, was basically his dying breaths. I know. I, I was I was speechless at the end of the movie, which is not a good place to be if you're going to get on a podcast and talk about the movie. But Do you ever do a thing like at the beginning of a podcast where you're like, where you're like cut and say, all right, go watch the movie. Go watch that movie, folks. It's Look, if a Japanese film from 1952 does not sound like something you want to watch, you will not regret it. It's beautiful. Uh, thematically, it's beautiful. Visually, it's absolutely gorgeous. I mean, there are plenty of shots that are just people in a big shared office space just talking. And Kurosawa always keeps that frame interesting. It's always worth looking at. That shot with uh, from behind the supervisor looking out at the uh, the rows of his workers that are all back and forth talking mm-hmm. to one another. And you've got that fan up overhead oscillating. It's there, There's always something going on in, in his frame. Right. These little things, they, they reappear. I personally like, you know, an early scene where he comes home to his family. What you see in the corner is a framed picture of his wife who's passed away yeah some 20 odd years ago and it's framed exactly like what you would see what you wind up seeing in his own in at his funeral or at his wake i should say Uh, just little recurring things like that that come back and, and get you yeah. The, the, the bunny rabbit that he gives his uh, young paramour, you know, as a gift, which she promptly rejects, which prompts him to grab it from her as the happy birthday is playing in the background. What did you take out of the relationship between Watanabe and, and Toyo, who is the, the young lady? Because I did not get the impression that there was anything on his end that was untoward. She definitely got that impression towards the end, though, when she was like, what are we doing? Why are you taking such an interest in me? This is not proper at all. I think that was one of the more realistic moments in the film because yes, of course, a girl half his age, younger even, would be creeped out by this old guy wanting to hang out with her. And I think I take it on his I take it on face value that he was telling her the truth. You just have a love of life that I find fascinating and I want to know where that comes from. And maybe it's somewhat incumbent upon the viewer to to detect, you know, a mild well I I wouldn't I you can't call it an obsession, but it's it maybe it's just maybe it's a mild crush, but it's a crush on her youth because she's clearly at certain points she's not really having it there, there's some of these scenes in these uh you know in these very crowded environments where you know she's pressing him like oh what are we gonna we're just gonna go to another noodle shop or whatever and he's just sitting there just you can feel him folding in upon himself in upon his sorrow i think when they first <laughs> correct me if i'm wrong here but i think he had not slept after this long night with the uh, hipster writer dude, she approaches him in the morning and then they just go out immediately and start eating and drinking and going, or maybe not drinking, but like going going to all these basically amusements. And it dude just doesn't sleep. That sounds right to me. So the actor, what, what's his name again? Takashi Shimura. Shimura. One of the better performances I've ever seen in film. I, I, I tend to speak in hyperbole sometimes. Not right now. His performance was... 
utterly convincing. The scene where he finds out he's going to die. And there's several takes in this that are pretty long. There's definitely stuff that Spielberg took from Akira Kurosawa, by the way, in this movie. Lots of lots of long takes with different blocking setups going on in it. And the, the scene where he finds out that he's dying, the different looks that just cross his face. He doesn't say a word. It's just all in his face. It's uh, very realistic, very heartbreaking. He spends a lot of his performance, at, le- at least the non-flashback scenes, with I think it's his, maybe his bottom lip is just like hanging a little bit lower. Mm-hmm than his top is and it's kind of just gives this feel of like just things aren't good for this guy his lips hanging a little bit lower but like if you contrast Shimura's performance in the seven samurai the next film that they would make together he's like the the zen guy and he's got this shit eating grin on his face most of the time and it's just like it's a completely different thing and i think you'll i think you'll get a lot out of this and also i i think that you know a lot of things we're we're talking about formally can also go back to rashomon which I think was a couple of films before mm-hmm. Akira, especially the the notion of the funeral in which we learn through flashback everything that happens. That does come out of a kernel that that Rashomon is well known for. In fact, there's a I think the term for it is the Rashomon effect. Is that right? Um, yeah, I think that that's the uh, that's maybe the term for you know the scenario where we learn about you know multiple point of views of what may have happened in the past in the situation through the point of views of, of three four different people and together they inform what may have been the core truth. Kurosawa, this was his I believe it was his thirteenth feature film at this point, and you can definitely tell this guy's honed his craft. He knows what he's doing at this point. Uh, it doesn't surprise me that that device. For like the last hour or 50 minutes or whatever the film uh, showed up in another film of his before. This is very early 50s. Uh, Film had not been around that long at this point, and it's already operating at a level that, I mean, pick a random Netflix original movie. This is light years beyond that stuff. Uh, I'm not to pick on Netflix original movies. In fact, I'll be talking about one of those pretty soon. But there's a reason why people write books about the work of Akira Kurosawa. He was not alone in being a master at working at that time. I mean, the cinema of post-war Japan in general is is something you can really dive into. There's a lot of other filmmakers. But I, I think that, you know, Kurosawa does serve as an excellent gateway to then go and look into other filmmakers of the era for, that were working in Japan. I mean, Azu is somebody who got started a little bit earlier in the silent era. Then you get into things like Nagisa Oshima and Imamura. And there's, you know, when Kurosawa crosses over to color, there's this shift. And I'm not well enough informed to suggest that maybe these are the bookends of one of the great eras in Japanese cinema. But there, there's a lot to discover between the 40s and 60s in Japanese cinema there that I personally will probably never fully tap just for my own volition. Yeah, there's a lot. You can go a lot of places. Well, I'm looking forward to getting into that stuff. So again, Thanks for turning me on to this movie. Thanks for giving me an excuse to watch a Kurosawa movie. I'm blown away. I feel like it, it might be disappointing from here on out, though. I mean, I, a lot of a lot of critics point to this one as being the top of the mountain, and maybe it's just all downhill from here. Hopefully, I don't get my expectations up too high. No, nah, I don't think I don't think you will. Man. There's there's it's far too much. Yeah, there's there's a lot uh, there's a lot to appreciate about this movie. It's beautiful on a cinematography level. 
It's beautiful on a narrative thematic level. And there's more meat on the bone if you want to get into that. There's tons of stuff. This movie is a scathing indictment of bureaucracy. There's family themes at work here about especially Japanese-specific cultural norms that are being violated with, with the son and the son's wife, and they just do not respect their elder at all. It's a very humanistic movie. He didn't really go after spirituality at all, which seems to be something that, I mean, this is a movie from the 50s. and yeah. If this were an yeah. American movie tackling similar subject matter, that this guy would be on his knees in mass or, or church. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah, and and he doesn't even consider that at all. It's as life affirming, I think, as cinema comes. Toby, thank you so much for joining me. And thank you so much once again for turning me on to this movie. Um, I'm in love with this movie and I feel like I'm going to have a long relationship with it. I'm almost certainly going to go back to it. Oh, man, it's my pleasure. Uh, I'll share this movie with anyone. It's one, it's one of my favorites, if not, if not the. Yeah. So just to be clear, we're both recommending this movie to you. Thanks so much, Toby. Good talk. Take Thanks. it easy, man. Thanks. Yeah, you too, bud. All right. And that wraps it up. Next episode, we return to the filmography of Jeremy Saulnier with his ultra gritty genre twisting green room. Uh, by the way, give us a follow on Instagram. You can find us there at filmography underscore club underscore podcast. And maybe give us a review on whatever platform you're using to hear the podcast. Every little bit helps. The goal here is to be able to produce more and more episodes. And every review and follow gets us a little bit closer to that goal. So we would really appreciate it. I want to thank my guest, Toby Leonard, for his insight. I'd also like to thank Michael Leeds, Will Fox, and Ross Warner. Filmography Club is produced by the always hardworking folks at We Own This Town here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm Jason Cavanis. This is Filmography Club. Thanks for listening.